Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast. Another month has gone by. It is now August. Welcome to the show. My name is Galena. I am one of your hosts. And with me today is... This is Justin, your other host. And on top of all that, we have Dr. Justin, Dr. Justin Cruder, to be specific with us on the show. Hey, thanks for letting me be here with you guys. Uh, welcome. So today we're going to be talking about um, HLA typing, right? I am guessing that most of our listeners are fairly familiar with blood typing. There are eight basic blood types, right, that a donor and a recipient are tested for before blood transfusion. Um, most of you should be familiar with that. However, what we're talking about today is HLA typing which isn't necessary in a regular blood transfusion because HLA, or human leukocyte antigen, isn't present on red blood cells. And to help us better understand what HLA typing is and why it's important, we have with us Dr. Justin, and he is a clinical pathologist at the Mayo Clinic. He has subspecialized practice in transfusion medicine and organ transplant compatibility testing. Lucky for us, he is also passionate about medical education in the field of laboratory medicine. So once again, welcome to the show. And before we really jump into the content, can you tell us a little bit more about what your current role is in patient care process um, at Mayo Clinic? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I am a transfusion medicine physician and I have, uh, I'm also the associate medical director of our histocompatibility lab. And my heart beats uh, strong and proud for medical education. So that means I get to play in a couple different arenas from undergraduate medical education, like medical school. And also I am the fellowship program director for our transfusion medicine fellowship and teaching a bunch of programs across the hospital, like anesthesia, critical care, and then uh, also I've, uh, in the past, I've gotten to dabble with uh, continuing medical education with running the Transfuse Conference when Mayo did that uh, pre-pandemic. Yeah, and I also know you are involved in um, many conferences and many forms of education. And I know you've been to the Clinical Laboratory Collaborative as a speaker um, with ASCLS. Um, so you're very involved uh, in the community. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It's, it's an awesome community to be involved with and, and, uh, you know, getting the chance to talk on this podcast with you guys is just another opportunity to kind of engage with the larger community and, and kind of, uh, bounce some of these really interesting ideas around. Great. And speaking of great ideas, let's kind of start from the beginning. You know, I've kind of already mentioned today that we're going to be talking about HLA typing, human leukocyte antigen typing, and why it's important and what the laboratory has to do with it. And if we bring it all the way back, tell me a little bit more about what it is, why it's important, uh, when it's involved, um, when is it used? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So it, it really kind of hinges on uh, a couple of different areas in medical practice, uh, HLA, uh, human leukocyte antigens. Uh, I think about these as the flagpoles on our cells that that sort of define almost, you think about like, you know, the, the flag of the United States uh, defining the, the United States, what this idea is. And it's kind of the same thing, or at least the way I think about it for HLA is that we have... Uh, all the cells in my body have HLA expressed on their surface, and it's sort of letting all my cells know that this is self, and then, uh, you know, other things that might invade my body, um, whether that's, uh, you know, uh, an infection or uh, if there was an organ transplant or blood transfusion, then I'm getting exposed to things that are not self. Um, and so, where HLA comes into play is in a couple of different situations. Uh, I think kind of three main ones come to mind. Uh, it really plays a profound role when we're talking about uh, organ transplantation, both solid organ transplantation, like lungs, heart, kidney, um, but also uh, when we're talking about hematopoietic stem cell transfusion, uh, sorry, <laughs> hematopoietic stem cell transplant uh, as well. Uh, so that's one area where it comes into playing an important role. And when I say an important role, I mean that it, it really has a huge impact on the success or uh, not success of that transplant. And certainly anytime we have uh, a precious organ become available, we want to give it to a patient that is going to be able to have uh, many wonderful years of life uh, with that transplanted organ. So that's why that's HLA is important there. It's also important in transfusion medicine as well. So even though, as you correctly pointed out, we're not doing HLA uh, testing before doing a blood transfusion, but as some people might be aware, uh, HLA antibodies play a significant role in patients that become refractory to platelet transfusions. Also for that uh, trolley transfusion related acute lung injury that also uh, HLA antibodies has a role. In that case, it's donor derived in most situations. And then the third place where HLA uh, plays an important role is with the uh, certain diseases have been associated with certain HLA types. And so if somebody is suspecting a certain uh, disease um, and there is a known HLA association by doing an HLA typing, uh, you can usually rule down the idea that it's that disease uh, in play as a potential in the patient's differential diagnosis. So those are kind of the three main places where HLA is really important in transplant decisions, uh, transfusion medicine, patient management, uh, and then the third is in disease association testing. This is really fascinating for me where I remember going through my undergraduate program for medical laboratory sciences and had the opportunity of going into an organ transplant laboratory, seeing the uh, the technology that they work with, the testing that they do. It was just such an amazing 
direction that I had never thought to consider. And I still to this day carry a donate life pin on my bags that I often travel with. And some people do come out and say, hey, I recognize that. And so I think it's just really amazing of this other area of laboratory for HLA testing that dips into a whole nother world of antigens. And I'm even hearing now other applications that weren't uh, discussed with me or that I new applications that have gone in for HLA. And again, just expanding the role of where laboratory can help in patient care. Yeah, absolutely, Justin. I feel like HLA, even in, you know, I've, I've been uh, in this role for about eight years now. And even in that time frame, uh, the process of how we have been going about uh, with transplant and transfusion medicine has been uh, changing and advancing. Um, you know, the, the types of testing that we're doing is changing, the, the clinical protocols about what's the significance of this test, these testings, it's always changing, it seems like, and it just, um, it really is a very, um, very interesting aspect of uh, clinical medicine and in laboratory medicine. I already have so many questions, even regarding the the different areas where you would use HLA typing, as you've mentioned. But as our audience is geared towards the laboratory, my first one is um, for HLA typing, is it typically done in your core blood bank or do you see it more as a specialized uh, department that it works these up? Yeah, it, we we see it really as a specialized uh, area of the lab. So uh, a technologist uh, will really um, be hired into a histocompatibility lab, HLA lab, tissue typing lab. All those names kind of end up being <laughs> synonymous. Um, and uh, really, uh, it's because of the complexity of uh, HLA testing and a lot of the nuances. And then like we talked about, it's just such a rapidly advancing area. We you, we really have to have um, techs that enter into this area. You know, there's about a, a year long process to get really uh, trained in to doing HLA testing. But then once trained in, right, these technologists or laboratory medical scientists are really at the front line interacting uh, with our transplant surgeons, with our transplant clinicians, uh, helping them to understand the testing, uh, what we're doing, what we're seeing. Um, and really, it's really a, a very transparent place of the lab to see the good work that you're doing. Um, you know, when you get called in in the middle of the night to do a cross match uh, for a patient who's going to get a heart or a kidney, um, you know, it, it's wonderful to uh, see the um, the results of your work, what what does that mean for the patient? How does that change how we care for them? Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, by and large, the most part, it's uh, wonderful stories in transplant medicine. Great. So when we're talking about the process of organ transplant, hematopoietic stem cell transplants in the laboratory involvement, uh, what regulating body oversees uh, this entire process? So transplantation is really overseen and, and regulated by a couple of different bodies. Uh, so 
We've got in the laboratory the American Society for Histocompatibility and Immunogenetics. Uh, we also have uh, FACT, so the Foundation for the Accreditation of Cellular Therapy, um, when we're talking about hematopoietic uh, stem cell transplantation. Uh, and we also have uh, CAP, uh, College of American Pathologists, uh, playing a role as well in accrediting uh, laboratories. So with the accreditation process then, do you also go through proficiency testing in the same way we would see in more routine areas of laboratory testing? Yeah, and, and it's interesting, right, as uh, this is a, an aspect where, um, you know, we do proficiency testing on, on our tests in HLA, and it's also, um, you know, in, in uh, continuing to evolve and I think uh, get better uh, for some of our testing, like, you know, uh, HLA antibodies, when we're looking at uh, the antibodies, which are the, the kind of uh, immune uh, fingerprint of, um, that we have to pay attention to if we're going to transplant into a given patient. I have a question as far as matching mm -hmm. when it comes to finding compatibility between a donor and a recipient. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed a documentary called Mixed Match, and it was focused on mixed race bone marrow donors. And the idea that if you're of one particular ethnic background, then there is a certain homogeneity that you may experience between family members and other people that have the same sort of genetic background. But the more and more we start to dip into um, mixed race or less commonly seen ethnic backgrounds in the United States, the likelihood of finding a matched donor, getting that five out of five or ideally six out of six, is just becomes increasingly harder. And I'm wondering if you've at the Mayo Clinic if you've seen this kind of trend happening, um, and what we can do in order to try to make for a more robust donor basis. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, any opportunity I have to plug uh, people, um, you know, registering for uh, being an organ donor and uh, particularly uh, also for um, the National Marrow uh, Donor Program, uh, these these are areas where we need more people to sign up and register. And you know, I, I am a uh, over 40-year-old uh, white male, so, you know, in, in my case, uh, people may not be as interested in me as a donor for a uh, hematopoietic stem cell uh, transplant. But when you're talking about uh, mixed-raced uh, individuals and uh, individuals that are from a minority uh, community or persons of color, I think that it's fair to say that there is a huge and profound need for people to uh, register as donors so that it's more likely that people will find uh, their perfect match. And I think that highlights, you know, a few things about kind of the contrast about how these processes work for, you know, for trying to pick out a donor for hematopoietic stem cell transplant, as opposed to if we're trying to pick out, um, you know, which recipient uh, a heart is going to uh, be given to. Um, so if I can contrast those two, uh, if we're talking about uh, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, exactly what you're talking about, Justin, is we're looking for that really high resolution uh, typing 
and we're trying to match the uh, donor and recipient as much as we can. And so when we're talking about HLA, there's a couple of different uh, loci that we're matching at. And that's when you kind of brought up that level of match when you're hearing uh, six out of six, or if we're talking about bone marrow transplant, we might be talking about eight out of eight, 10 out of 10, or even 12 out of 12, because um, it depends on how many antigens uh, we are matching at. Um, and so in hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, the name of the game really is uh, finding that uh, match. And we can kind of dive down the rabbit hole of, you know, when we can't find that match, because I think that's a really important conversation, a really interesting aspect uh, to the HLA laboratory. Um, and in contrast, when you're talking about solid organ transplantation, uh, the name of the game there uh, in many cases are really uh, avoiding antibodies, uh, right, which is uh, another strategy that both those strategies we see represented uh, when we're thinking about transfusion medicine, right? Uh, we see examples where we might be upfront uh, matching a donor and recipient, like if somebody's matching because a patient has uh, sickle cell disease, or in more routine blood banking, uh, we might be just avoiding antibodies. So if somebody has an antibody against big E, we set up a unit that's negative for the big E antigen. Same sort of processes you see in transplantation. So the bone marrow transplantation, you're uh, trying to go for that full match. Uh, and in solid organ transplantation, you're trying to avoid antibodies uh, when you're picking out um, what organ can go into what patient. Okay, that makes sense. And you mentioned before that the resolution has gotten a lot better over the years and their ability to detect even specific subtypes of HLA antigens. What kind of advancements have we seen and what kind of technologies are you usually working with in these labs? Yeah, so over time, this is a, another area where I guess it, it kind of does mimic what we see uh, in transfusion medicine a little bit um, in that uh, the histocompatibility lab really has a strong history in uh, serology, but in more recent years has really made the move to molecular methods for their typing. And over time, the method used has also um, increase. So, you know, we have gone from using, um, you know, uh, molecular methods uh, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, allonucleotide uh, probes or sequence-specific primers uh, to using uh, sequence-based uh, typing, uh, you know, from Sanger to a lot of labs are now using next generation sequencing in order to do their HLA typing. So there's been this, this large move from uh, serology to molecular, and it's been interesting just culturally as a laboratory uh, to, to make that move. Um, and uh, you know, we see that also, I think, in transfusion medicine. There's a lot of evolution happening in, I think, all, all of the medical fields. And of course, as you just stated, you've moved from serology to next gen. And hearing you talk about solid organ um, 
workups versus hematopoietic stem cell workups. Are you finding that you your work is reaching a, a perfection of a formula of saying this is an a hundred percent match, or is it more of um, ambiguity in this field of you're kind of doing your best uh, w- with what you have, right? Because organs are a limited resource. And um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, those kind of gray areas that might come up, or is there any? Oh, absolutely! It, it is it is a world of gray. <laughs> That which, it, <laughs> which is another reason why it's it's just so uh, it's such an interesting area of the lab and um, and it really uh, takes a lot to kind of um, uh, train up in these areas. So uh, it actually both when we're talking about um, as we've been talking about the uh, molecular, the move to molecular for antigen typing, as well as uh, the move for more sensitive antibody typing. Uh, both of these have have uh, clarified issues and uh, created new issues as well. So t- taking them in turn, the um, with the higher resolution of typing and typing and sequencing outside of where we historically had typed. So we now are seeing differences um, between typing that we didn't know were there uh, just a few years ago because the next gen sequencing is giving us more information than just the, the specific exons that we were looking at at for uh, Sanger sequencing, for example. And so we, we were finding these, these differences and you know, there is um, you know, a lot to be learned about. Is, is this significant or not significant? You know? So in a lot of cases you know, where there's a difference outside of the peptide binding groove for HLA, a lot of times we're thinking of these as as not a significant differences, but I think we're still taking note uh, whenever we have this uh, sort of situation arise because it's really a a new territory. Um, This is kind of, if you go backwards in time, uh, this is what we discovered when we uh, found out, um, when we start first started doing molecular typing, when we started no- knowing what's the allele sequence as opposed to just the protein that is expressed on the cell. So when we were doing serology, that's when we were getting a lower resolution typing. And when we made that move to either oligonucleotide probes or sequence specific primers, we then started to see that there were differences that we failed to appreciate before. Now, in that context, those differences were clinically significant, um, and uh, we're kind of entering a, a little bit of a new phase like that now with with next gen, um, and uh, we have the benefit of you know a couple more years uh, understanding what types of antibodies we're seeing form in patients. Uh, flipping on the other side of that coin, if we're talking about not the antigens, but on the antibody side, uh, remember I said that antibodies are, are particularly important when we're talking about solid organ transplant because, you know, we just, it's almost like, um, you know, uh, you're at the mercy for what becomes available or what kind of uh, organ you get offered at your center. And so, 
because of that, um, you know, the antibody profile of the patient really needs to be kept up to date, current, and um, and then also interpreted by uh, the histocompatibility laboratory. And so as that testing has gotten more and more sensitive, it, it also has kind of posed this question out there of, you know, is everything that detected, is that also uh, clinically significant? Um, and so that's another area where uh, I think it's fair to say uh, histocompatibility laboratories are working to uh, to better understand and appreciate that, right? Because if we make an error in either direction, if we interpret something as clinically significant when it's not, we might kind of give a thumbs down and say, this is probably not a good transplant to have happen when in fact the patient may have benefited by the organ and would not have rejected it. Uh, on the other hand, if we say that something is not clinically significant, it turns out that it is, uh, not only is that organ that's been recently transplanted fail, and so that, that benefit of that donated organ is lost, but now that, org, that patient is back on the transplant list. And so it kind of, uh, just to highlight the stakes of, of these decisions and, and why it's so interesting, and each laboratory is really making their uh, own assessments uh, based on this testing, uh, because it really is um, a very dynamic area and an area where you're putting together not just the laboratory testing that we have, uh, but it's also what is the condition of the patient. Uh, are they in a clinical state that they can survive until the next uh, organ offer that might come up for them? Um, you know, there's a lot of other uh, aspects of the decision than just the laboratory. And as somebody that always grew up enjoying team sports, uh, I think this is another reason why I love uh, working in the uh, histocompatibility lab. Something I'm coming to appreciate in what you just shared there about how this is very much not a black and white area of lab. There's a lot of gray zone it is not just within the interpretation of the test, but really making that clinical decision on do we trans do we do the transplant or not? Um, and it's questions of quality of life. Can the patient manage those kinds of, you know, what it takes to keep themselves um what it takes to keep themselves compatible with the new organ, if that's going to work. And I'm also wondering then too, if we see differences in how patients respond, should it not be a perfect match? And, you know, cause very few things being perfect in this world that patients may have acute or chronic reactions. Is that something that we see? And could we possibly predict if we know the level of compatibility between the donor and recipient? That's a great question. I think it's it's fair to say that on the solid organ transplant side, um, that we are really, the histocompatibility lab is playing a primary role in, uh, the, in the headspace of, of most programs as helping to really mitigate that hyperacute rejection also make somebody aware of if there would be a concern for increased acute rejection. Uh, 
in the sort of pre-transplant phase. Uh, so is there anything that we need to do to mitigate the, the risk for that patient? Uh, and then also to follow that patient after transplant. And so the histocompatibility lab is one of, I, I think of it as kind of a three-prong uh, monitoring system for a transplant patient where the uh, anatomical pathologist uh, looking at the biopsy, the clinicians looking at organ function, and the histocompatibility lab looking at, are there any donor-specific antibodies that are now that we've been transplanted have been made uh, in this patient's immune system? Uh, that might be attacking the organ. So uh, we're playing a, an important role uh, in kind of predicting of when it's not going to be a successful transplant, but then also uh, as it looked like and it was compatible at the time of transplantation, at the end of the day, it's still uh, an organ from somebody that is quote unquote not self. And so um, that's why we need to monitor to see has somebody uh, subsequently uh, made antibodies so that we can help our clinicians understand that somebody is uh, falling into acute rejection or they have acute rejection because sometimes uh, acute rejection might have clinical overlap with some of the other presentations uh, from organ dysfunction as well. So we're monitoring uh, both uh, ahead of the transplant and after transplant for, as you're talking about, Justin, this, the incompatibility uh, that happens. Um, and we do the same primarily on the upfront side, uh, pre-transplant, when you're talking about bone marrow transplantation. So for people that are uh, fully matched, uh, we are not thinking about uh, HLA antibodies as a concern. But certainly whenever there is a mismatch, that's a point of concern and something to watch uh, for as well, you know, because we want to make sure that when we do the transplantation and infuse those hematopoietic stem cells, there's not an antibody sitting there waiting to sock that, uh, <laughs> sock that uh, hematopoietic stem cell uh, out. Uh, and so, you know, when you're talking about people that uh, were not able to find a completely matched donor because of a rare HLA typing, uh, then we have to go to uh, donors such as haploidentical donors, which are going to m match uh, half of the HLA. Or umbilical cord transplantation as a stem cell source, which also is relatively tolerant of HLA mismatches when you compare it with a peripheral uh, blood stem cell um, source or a bone marrow source. So right there, I've just added a little bit uh, more complexity and shades of gray to this world. <laughs> Is there, and this might be a silly question, but are there ever any cases where HLA typing, you just can't do it, right? It's, it's a critical, you need something now, and you're just doing your best, and so you aren't able to do the full workup like you would normally do? Or is there a pretty strict process that nothing can occur until stringent typing happens? 
Well, I, I don't, uh, our laboratory isn't one of the organ procurement uh, laboratories out there, but uh, certainly when we, uh, the HLA typing is a really important and critical step uh, so that we know where can these organs get distributed to. So for example, if you were not able to get a typing, you really wouldn't know uh, if a particular organ could go to a patient because maybe that, that recipient uh, has antibodies that would bind to that and cause a, a hyperacute rejection. So in uh, most of the cases I'm thinking about, you know, you're going to have to know that typing ahead of time, at least in, you know, that's the way that these organs get distributed uh, as they kind of... Um, and this kind of dives into a little bit of the ethics of, you know, the distribution of organs. But, you know, the HLA typing uh, goes into the United uh, Network for Organ Sharing, the UNOS computer, which can run its algorithm to give organ offers to various um, uh, patients. And so that's the main driver uh, for everything. I think the only time where we're talking about maybe uh, shortcutting uh, a situation that I can think of is if we were doing a kidney transplant where, you know, we would have the typing done. So that all was done uh, correctly. Um, but if we did a you know, if it was something like an extended criteria kidney, so a kidney that has had a longer cold ischemic time and uh, there was a sense that you couldn't wait for a flow cross match, for example, to, to um, determine compatibility, which has kind of been the gold standard. Uh, you know, you might uh, go off of a virtual cross-match where that's a, a relatively newer aspect of cross-matching uh, where it's looking at the typing of the organ and the typing of the patients, the recipients' antibodies to determine if it would be uh, compatible or not. That's really the only uh, shortcut that I think of when I think about organ transplant and if we can't uh, get typing results is, you know, we have, or I'm sorry, I misspoke. That would be the only situation where, um, you know, we might circumvent uh, doing a flow cross match. And that's really gonna be a decision that each program is going to have to determine, which is another fascinating aspect of this, right? Um, everybody's success and failure rate is very public and known. And certainly all the transplant patients that, I, that I've interacted with are well aware about what their transplant center's uh, success rate is for the particular organ that they're waiting for. Um, and, uh, you know, if uh, a given program is not having uh, success, uh, they're really at risk at, at losing the privilege to perform uh, organ transplantation. So all these decisions uh, really are, um, you know, layered in uh, together and ultimately uh, play out as the transplant center's outcomes of success in each of these different organ transplantation types. And I'm hearing that it, it's 
I mean, it sounds like you get a chance to really work with an interdepartmental team. I'm hearing hematopathology. I'm hearing the histocompatibility lab. I'm also hearing that you do have some direct inter- uh, interaction with the patients that are receiving organ transplant. Um, so that must be interesting in itself that you get an in- get the chance to interact with all these different departments that go into the puzzle pieces that make for a transfusion or a transplantation. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's a it, it's an important aspect I think for a team's success because everybody needs to understand how to communicate with each other, how to how to work optimally with each other. You have to have really a shared trust uh, between the lab, the surgeons, the transplant clinicians. Uh, there's also a lot of people um, such as uh, transplant coordinators that are helping to play a role in all this. And uh, it, it really is imperative that everybody is communicating well and working well. And so a lot of our meetings really are quite interdisciplinary, which, again, makes it really kind of a fun area to work because you you start to learn and appreciate what are the other uh, pieces of the puzzle that the other members of the team are bringing to? And you can sort of start to appreciate the nuance on why a process runs a certain way at your hospital. Mm, I like that. Having heard the involvement of the laboratory in the both prediction and the monitoring aspect of uh, organ transplant, hematopoietic stem cell transplant, just the entire world of HLA typing. I wanted to um, ask if there are any cases that we could uh, follow through to really help um, any laboratorians out there who don't currently work in an HLA lab really understand the full workup. So um, where does the process start? what kind of steps are taken? What is the typical turnaround time? Uh, you know, are there adverse event workups that have to happen, et cetera? Yeah. So I thought it would be uh, kind of fun to, I've kind of looked at these processes and kind of, you know, almost if we talk about it as, as maybe myself getting the transplant, I won't, <laughs> I won't, I won't put either of you up on the, on the block here, but I'll, I'll just maybe use myself as an example. And, Let's just go ahead and start with like a hematopoietic uh, stem cell transplant. So, for example, let's just say that I have uh, AML, acute myelogenous leukemia, and hopefully uh, by saying it doesn't make it so. Uh, But, you know, let's say I've got uh, acute leukemia, and so it's determined that because of my cytogenetics that we're going to transplant me in first remission. So in that case, uh, what ends up happening first is I'll get uh, HLA typed. And we already discussed, since we're talking about a bone marrow transplant, that typing is going to be a high resolution uh, typing. So it's either going to be, it'll be some kind of a sequence-based typing, whether that's Sanger or next generation sequencing. Um, And it's going to be typing uh, of my uh, six different loci. And I said 12 because I get one from mom and one from dad. So uh, HLA class one is going to be A, B, and C loci. 
And then my class two is going to be my uh, DR, DQ, and DP typing. And so that'll be done uh, first for me. Uh, and so that'll be done both as a uh, initial test, and then it, there's going to be a second confirmatory sample uh, collected uh, to confirm that HLA typing. Uh, and then also it's going to be looking at not just the antigen side, but also we're going to pull and look at the antibodies that I have as well. And so what will happen is once that high resolution typing gets uh, resulted, and we're probably talking about, you know, a week or so turnaround time in the bone marrow transplant world, um, generally speaking, it's not a stat uh, urgent sort of process as you go through. I mean, maybe there's a little asterisk there for certain situations, but in general, um, it's typing that's done and transplant is occurring when somebody is in remission. So uh, once we have the typing done, uh, we're then going to go and look at the National Marrow Donor Program to see, do I have any matches? And so what will happen is our coordinators will pull up a list uh, from uh, the NM NMDP, National Marrow Donor Program, and then they'll send it to the HLA lab. And this is kind of one of the first, um, I guess, the second step that the HLA ha uh, lab has after doing the testing for what's HLA type and uh, antibodies in a patient uh, recipient. And it's sent to the lab because the lab is going to pick out, at least in our case here, we pick out uh, five uh, donors that we're going to request confirmatory typing uh, of. And so let's just say that I'm very lucky uh, and uh, I've got five uh, donors um, that are perfect HLA match uh, for me. And so as a lab, we'll kind of go down and pick out uh, which five we want to do. It's all just a, a matter of, you know, um, how much is uh, an institution wanting to invest in typing? Because at the end of the day, uh, we're going to pick a primary donor and then a backup donor. Uh, so the HLA lab will send that back to the coordinator who will then uh, work with NMDP to get the, these donors that are selected to come in for uh, additional typing where we'll confirm that we are a high resolution uh, match. That sample will get sent to our hospital here. Uh, we'll do that testing. And then we come together as, as Justin uh, has kind of mentioned, this interdisciplinary team uh, where we have the uh, hematologists, we've got uh, cell therapy uh, folks, we've got transfusion medicine folks, and then we have the histocompatibility lab in the room as well as we go down and look at the typing and pick out uh, which donor we want to select as a primary donor and which donor we want to select as the backup donor. Um, and, you know, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, we've, we've done the typing. Justin said we found uh, five perfect matches. How, how do you determine uh, who's the primary and who's, who's the secondary? And that really comes down to, um, you know, after the HLA has been uh, determined to be a match, you know, there's other things to consider as well, like the donor's age. So a younger donor is a more uh, desirable donor to have in terms of outcomes. 
Um, there's other aspects that a lot of centers are paying attention to as well, such as the ABO uh, compatibility or not. Uh, if it's an ABO incompatible transplant, which we do in uh, bone marrow transplant. Uh, what's the uh, gender of the donor and how does that match or mismatch with the patient? And uh, CMV status, all these are things that play a role into what a center is going to call as their uh, number one ideal donor. And then, you know, again, a backup donor is selected as well uh, in case something happens during workup of the primary donor. Uh, once that's done, uh, then uh, you know the request goes out to that uh, donor's collection facility to say, hey, we'd like you to collect these many uh, stem cells for the patient. Um, and hopefully that goes off without a hitch. It gets collected. Our cellular therapy colleagues are really running the show there, uh, which is why they're also playing a role in this kind of conversation. Um, and, uh, and then I would get transplanted. And so, you know, you think about the typical turnaround time for this process I've just described. And, you know, we're probably talking, you know, on average, uh, you know, six to eight weeks till a couple of months, depending on what the patients, uh, the particulars of their situation are. And then what is the time frame for the monitoring piece? So uh, the monitoring piece in bone marrow transplant uh, is, is usually monitoring um, for uh, graft versus host disease, um, which is really a clinical monitoring uh, for the most part. And then that's where a lot of times our transfusion medicine uh, colleagues are getting involved. Because uh, if somebody is having uh, graft-versus-host disease, which happens in, I think, you know, estimated around 70% of allogeneic uh, stem cell transplants will have some amount of graft-versus-host disease. And I guess it's worth mentioning that, um, you know, we haven't yet quite figured out how to separate the graft-versus-host disease, which we generally don't like, from the graft-versus-leukemia effect, which is what we're doing the transplant uh, really for in the first place. Um, and so uh, when somebody has uh, graft-versus-host disease, that's where transfusion medicine will oftentimes get involved in doing a procedure uh, called uh, extracellular um, or extracorporeal uh, photophoresis as a way to uh, immune modulate the, uh, the transplanted uh, immune system from attacking the recipient's organs. And what organs get attacked, but the organs which really have a high HLA expression, in other words, those that are really acting as these kind of barrier uh, surfaces of, you know, uh, the outside of the body from the inside. So things like the skin, uh, the gastrointestinal tract, uh, the liver, um, because of their role in designating self from non-self. This is bringing back so many memories from when I was in the, uh, the hematology lab and seeing the people from cell therapy coming over, using our CBC analyzers to running certain samples, testing how much stem cells are in there. I remember even getting pay, uh, 
samples from donors and thinking, whoa, what's going on with all these white cells? And then you hear, oh, they're on growth quality stimulating factor, TCSF, and to harvesting those stem cells. But now as we're speaking on this, I'm suddenly remembering some things in the slides that I've seen to the patient samples that have come in and the counts that I've seen, and even to doctors calling in and asking, can I get a differential on this slide? And it would be from someone who just received a uh, who just received an organ transplant. And I'm thinking, I can't find anything. I don't see any cells. And they would say, I just need one. Just tell me if it's a lymphocyte or a neutrophil. And I can't remember at this point, which one we want to see versus not um, in predicting that grafts versus host disease. Well, I think a lot of times what we're seeing or maybe what people are looking for is engraftment when you're talking about bone marrow transplant. Uh, when you're talking about engraftment, you're really, um, you know, you're looking to see when somebody is going to be uh, engraft usually their uh, neutrophils uh, first, and then uh, later their platelets uh, come around and engraft. And, and those are really important uh, determinants uh, for our patients. And in fact, based on their disease that they have, uh, that might actually play into what is the source of stem cell that you select um, because, um, for example, if somebody uh, is going for a transplant and they have a very fibrotic uh, bone marrow, it, it might be really important uh, to get a higher uh, stem cell uh, dose uh, for transplant. So in other words, that's why it might be less desirable to do a transplant with, for example, uh, an umbilical cord stem cell where you have typically a lower dose as opposed to something like when you would have a uh, peripheral blood uh, stem cell collection where you typically have a higher cell dose of those CD34 uh, positive uh, cells. So a lot of times that's what we're looking for is that engraftment. And it's really uh, another testament to this kind of interdisciplinary uh, nature. And like you said, we also have our colleagues uh, from the hematology laboratory that are also going to be typically involved in looking at um, helping us understand when we're starting to see engraftment. Uh, we also uh, are also having colleagues that are involved from looking at chimerism studies to see uh, that, yes, we're seeing uh, donor uh, cells present in the patient's lines. So uh, an another great interdisciplinary story. I remember hearing chimerism and I remember doing that in some of my classwork and it escapes me still. Like I have an idea what you're talking about. It is there are people smarter than me for that particular area. So. <laughs> That's why it takes a team. It's, again, something that we don't do in our particular laboratory, but is part of the overall uh, bone marrow transplant uh, you know, catalog of tests in laboratory medicine that's important uh, for supporting these patients. Now, how does the case you've just presented for a bone marrow transplant, how does that workup differ for, from a solid organ transplant? Uh, great, great. So to flip on the other side, uh, let's just say uh, I've got a bad heart. Um, and uh, so in this uh, situation, I, I need a heart. 
And so we would, uh, again, do the same process for uh, typing and uh, looking at the antibodies. But importantly here, uh, the typing um, doesn't need to be that high-resolution typing, or it doesn't have to be as high of a resolution typing. In some cases, it can be, uh, and there's reasons why a laboratory might just do, uh, you know, molecular sequence-based typing for a heart transplant patient. Uh, but, you know, the typing is is nice to have, but really when we're talking about me getting a heart, in that context, my antibodies are really uh, kind of paramount in importance. Because uh, again, if I've got some antibodies that are sitting around to make a heart um, have a hyperacute rejection, uh, we really need to know that kind of eyes wide open going into the transplant. And so that's why that antibody test is so important. Uh, because let's say we find that I've got an antibody against HLA-A2. Um, well, we're going to go in and when they have me listed uh, in UNOS, uh, United uh, National uh, Organ Sharing Network, um, they're going to uh, add that, you know, we don't want any offers of an A2, HLA-A2 positive heart. So in other words, you know, in other words, then any offer that comes that where we know ahead of time would be incompatible, that it automatically skips me, even though I might be next on the list. And we can already kind of understand that this adds another area of nuance uh, to this process. But as you can imagine, you know, this is a lot more or can be uh, a more of a rapid kind of situation. Sometimes we have people that have a, a very uh, acute and severe uh, heart failure and uh, very rapidly uh, need to have a transplant. And so that's why in this context that typing, um, you know, still might take uh, a little bit of time to do. That antibody profile might take a few days to do, but, you know, somebody might uh, get listed and depending on the situation might get uh, an offer, um, you know, within a few days to a few weeks, uh, depending on their situation. Again, if, you know, from an ethical distribution of organs, if their clinical situation dictates they really need to be at the, the front of the line. And so basically, uh, when the organ uh, UNOS computer kind of goes through and allocates an organ to me, it's also going to be based on my ABO type. And that's another important contrast uh, to uh, the bone marrow transplant world, where you will do uh, ABO incompatible, uh, major, minor, bidirectional mismatch transplants. But generally speaking, with a few caveats, uh, solid organ transplant uh, honors ABO rules uh, before it pays attention to HLA uh, rules. So, uh, you know, in my case, I, I'm a blood group B, so I have an anti-A, so any organ from an A or AB donor wouldn't be good to give me. So my offers will be somewhat limited by that. And then also based on my body size, that's something that the surgeons are going to be paying attention to as I get the organ offer. You know, is this 
heart of a sufficient size to support my body or is this heart too big for this body? Uh, that's another consideration on the clinical side that they're taking into uh, when determining are they going to import uh, that organ or not. And Just then with, adding one yeah. more layer of complexity. Now, the size of the organ matters along with all this other stuff, too. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, so it is highlights again, you know, that's a part that is happening also in the background that's just always important for us to, to understand. Um, and then when we get the uh, heart, um, you know, in, in some cases, like if we have somebody that does have antibodies, uh, here at our program, uh, we'll typically try to do a, a preliminary cross match to confirm that it's compatible, uh, which, as you can understand, might limit the uh, hearts that we can possibly take. Or if a patient is not alloimmunized, and this is kind of why a lot of the clinicians are really important not to alloimmunize patients, which is just puts another plug in for patient blood management. We only should be transfusing patients when absolutely necessary and in the pre-transplant setting, especially, uh, and transplant patients in general, uh, we should be using uh, leukocyte-reduced uh, blood products so that we're not uh, aluminizing or we're, we're minimizing the risk of aluminization as much as possible. Um, because if somebody doesn't have HLA antibodies, a lot of cases we're accepting that heart transplant and we're doing the flow cross match uh, at the same time that the surgeons are stitching in the heart. Now, that still it doesn't mean that our testing is, is any less important. And so, you know, if we can get our testing done uh, before they release the cross clamps and that uh, heart that's been stitched in now gets perfused, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, if we have an unexpected positive cross match, you know, then we can start to try to intervene for the patient. You know, is this something that we can use, uh, again, enlisting our colleagues in transfusion medicine, where we can do plasma exchange to bring down the antibody, um, if we can engage with our pharmaceutical colleagues, there's drugs like eculizumab that will let us, um, you know, uh, try to take out the complement-mediated damage uh, from antibodies. And so uh, it kind of highlights, again, the importance of the HLA lab is providing this information uh, in a very timely way, and you can see it dramatically impact how we care for a patient, and then the outcomes that we will see from that patient. If we can really minimize uh, any immune damage that that patient might have towards their organ. I really appreciate that the solid organ transplant case you presented had to do with a heart transplant because over the last few years, you start to see uh, news publications about, you know, lab grown mini hearts that beat like the real thing. So we're seeing this evolution of potentially growing organs in the laboratory. And that leads me to my question of, where do you see this evolving? Do you see that, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to not need donors because we can grow organs in the laboratory? It's a great question. I, I don't know. Um, you know, I think that that's a, a really important promise. And, 
you know, in the laboratory, a lot of us uh, or some of us may have cellular therapy colleagues and certainly regenerative medicine uh, has an amazing potential ahead for us. Uh, so, you know, can we uh, figure out a way to regenerate the damaged organ? Uh that would be absolutely fantastic, and I think there's a lot of work that's been gone in uh, to there. Uh, to your point about growing organs in the lab, I, I know we've I've got colleagues that, uh, although it was kind of interesting to they I think there was an initial interest to start with the heart, uh, but as you can imagine, it's a very complex organ. I, they moved over to liver, but using a pig's liver and then digesting away the cellular material so that you just have kind of that uh, fibrous um, component of the organ and then infusing stem cells. So you're sort of using the uh, using the foundation of a pig's liver, but if you're infusing it with your own stem cells, it's your own <laughs> hepatocytes and then transplanting that, I think has an interesting uh, future uh, as well. I think probably more uh, temporally, kind of more on the forefront is really going to be a continued interest in the ethical distribution of organs. And the HLA lab is playing a huge role in that because, as you might have guessed, as we're talking about people that have more and more antibodies where it's more difficult for them to have a compatible organ. Uh, you know, there's been moves, for example, in kidney transplant where those patients will receive a national priority on any organ offer that comes up. Uh, and so the HLA lab is really front and central when you're talking about transplant ethics. I think that, as we talked about earlier, the clinical significance uh, for some of this antigen typing, I think, is going to continue to evolve. You know, what what do we need to pay attention to and when? Uh, same thing with the HLA antibodies. Uh, I think we're going to continue to learn, you know, what antibodies that we can detect are clinically significant. Um, and certainly there's a whole new area emerging of not just HLA antigens, but non-HLA that we're learning about um, playing a role in uh, transplant compatibility. And so that's just a fascinating way to see this thread of, you know, now that we're getting the you know, major players and understanding how to navigate the major challenges in transplant, uh, now we're able to see things uh, that are still playing a role and uh, our, our knowledge continues uh, to evolve. I have a somewhat, it's actually very tangential question, but as we're talking about potential applications of HLA typing um, going forward, this is something just way different, but a burning to ask. In 2016, there was a study published in Nature talking about the influence of HLA typing on human partnership and sexual satisfaction. And what they did was they took college students and had them smell different shirts. And what was going on is they wanted to see what kind of olfactory stimulations people liked versus didn't like. You may notice that, you know, you might like your partner's smell or not. And what was coming up in the correlation that they found was that people who tend to like the olfactory smells of or the smells of their partner have a better HLA matching. 
And there's this idea that there may be some sort of behavioral thing going on where you're by having that like in someone's smell lets you know that they're a good match for having a more robust immunological setting for your offspring. I'm just curious if you've ever heard of this, you know, as is HLA typing going to somehow enter the dating world? It's just such an interesting report to see this idea of cross-matching the idea of attraction to a partner and immunological compatibility. Well, you know, maybe you just found out for me what my retirement plan is. (laughs) (laughs) But I, so to, for the audience, I think it's fair to say I'm going to go totally off the grid now (laughs) and say um, that what you're describing there, Justin, is, is really interesting to me because I've classically thought about uh, HLA as being one of those things that are co-expressed, you know, so it's a co-dominant expression. You know, you get an HLA-A from mom and an HLA-A from dad, and both are expressed. And something that's interesting is the different HLAs, they have different affinities to grabbing and presenting different foreign HLA. So in other words, I've always thought about it's stronger to have uh, diversity in your HLA repertoire because it's essentially like having more tools in the toolbox for saying, hey, I got this bug uh, that's invading me, as opposed to if somebody is homozygous uh, and has two of the same HLA uh, types, they don't have the advantage of additional uh, tools for expressing and, and showing that invader to the immune system. So I don't know. <laughs> it flies in the face of the way I think about HLA, but like I say, maybe that's a really interesting uh, uh, retirement plan for me in the future. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad I put that bug in your ear. Again, as I was learning more about HLA, it was something that I came across. I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. It might explain a few things. Now, granted, it's only one or two studies. It was only college students and heterosexuals. So like, you know, very limited data on that kind of area, but it was fun to think about. And I thought I'd pick your brain about it. (laughs) Thank you. And now we learned why it's better to be heterozygous than homozygous in a certain extent. Diversity just showing up in so many ways. (laughs) (laughs) And I also hope that in today's episode, everyone here has had an opportunity to learn that organ transplants that you see on Grey's Anatomy require more time and workup and decision-making than a simple phone call because that always drove me a little nuts. (laughs) So uh, Dr. Justin, where do we learn more? How do we connect with you after, after, uh, you know, today, uh, I still have a million more questions. Uh, How can we find out more and connect with you? So in general, I'm on most social media platforms as uh, CreuterMD is my handle. And so very active on Twitter, uh, where I'm kind of fully professional there. I've got a profile on Instagram, which is sort of a combination of uh, professional and personal, where I kind of try to show my life in total and how good or less good (laughs) 
I'm complimenting my personal and professional aspects. Um, so people can reach out to me there. Uh, they certainly can uh, drop me an email. Um, it's uh, croider.justin at mayo.edu. Uh, or, you know, I always love the opportunity to talk at meetings and engage with the audience, uh, which is why sometimes podcasting is a, a little bit of a challenge. But you guys have been awesome in uh, shooting questions my way. So uh, always uh, happy to connect with different groups. And I'm guessing that you may encourage people to consider to become a donor being in your field. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's very, it's very important uh, uh, that we kind of spread the word, just like we need uh, blood donors out there in our communities to keep uh, our patients safe. Uh, you know, by having organs available, we can take care of patients. Uh, you know, we all know the statistics about the number of patients that die waiting for an organ uh, each year. And, um, you know, so having more people registered and signed up is really going to make a huge difference there. And I put a special asterisk in that we're, you know, needing people from diverse backgrounds uh, to register as well. Uh, and then also always a plug for people to come uh, work in the tissue typing histocompatibility uh, laboratory. Uh, it's really a, a quite a nuanced area of laboratory medicine, uh, but it's also a very tight knit uh, interprofessional community as a result. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I think it's always great to have uh, med medical educators such as yourself on the show because we're really able to connect what the laboratory does daily to the bigger picture of patient care, right? Sometimes it's easy to get lost in specimen, 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 and um, it's always good to come back to really the full implication of what we do daily. Uh, much appreciation to what you do uh, and what all the HLA labs out there do. Um, Justin, any last words? Thank you so much for coming to speak with us. Um, I learned a lot more today than what I thought I knew. Um, and just even reminded of even a small piece of like even being in a hematology lab, you think that it's specimen, 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 it was just what we do. But even at that point, it's just some of these very complicated and complex areas of patient care really touch into a number of departments and a number of areas in laboratory. So we don't always know just how far our individual practice really has impact. And with that, we'll talk to you next month for our next Off the Bench podcast episode. Have a good one. Bye.